Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Tonight's show is presented as a Thanksgiving treat, a bonus show, if you will, ad-free and uninterrupted. We give thanks to you, our listeners. So we're just going to rejoin our original theories conversation where we left off. Happy Thanksgiving. We do know that activity died down. Yes, that most we do of know. It, most yeah. of it. That after this incident had happened, most of the activity. Yeah, people have was talked about encounters, but they're not a substantial. You can't attribute them to the level of things that were happening in those 13 months, which, by the way, I'd like to talk a little bit about numbers. Yeah, go right um, ahead. We made an allusion to this earlier, and I think this particular segment drives Cogswell, our skeptic on board, a little bit crazy. <laughs> well, but hey, come on. He's coming at it from the perspective of a scientist, which is what he is. So yes. they have a different thought process than the, the freewheeling folks like us that like to conjecture. Yes, Forrest has a friend who is a numerologist. Well, no, no. She, she takes it a Yeah, an enthusiast, as, yes. As she called herself a dilettante. Yes. Yeah, Skip Harvey's. Yeah, a little shout out there. to you, Skip. She found it interesting, and there are really interesting aspects to it. But she reads books and uh, goes to websites and different places of information on her own to just kind of brush up on it. But she does not practice. She does not make money off of it. She just kind of does it for fun. But she knows a lot more about it than either of us. So yeah. So we asked her about it. Can we read her email here? Or I, believe paraphrase it? I believe that's okay. Okay. I just want to remind everyone that in terms of the structural failure of the bridge, that I-bar 330 is the one that failed at joint C-13. I also want to remind everyone that in the 60-some page report from the Department of Transportation or whoever did the report on the failure of the bridge... The conclusion that states exactly what happened to the bridge is paragraph 13 in the conclusions section. Additionally, <laughs> the bridge collapsed almost 13 months to the day after the November 15th sighting that George and Linda and Steve and Mary saw of the Mothman in the TNT area when they were all in the 57 Chevy, which some people say is one of the first substantial sightings. There were a couple of sightings earlier, but either way, it was 13 months from the first sighting of the Mothman, give or take a few weeks, to the collapse of the bridge. Joint 13 is the one that failed. And by happenstance, it happened to be the 13th paragraph in the conclusions page of the report where they describe this failure. So we were asking Forrest's friend Kay about this. Yes, and her, her first initial. Yes, we're keeping her anonymous. But she just said... Just remember, I'm a dilettante, no expert, so she's taking everything with a grain of salt. I think one can find meaning in quotes behind all numbers if you look close enough. As with anything else, bias confirmation, as you are aware, can and will influence most interpretations. None of this is an exact science. All of it is open to interpretation. Those caveats laid bare, it depends on how deep you want to dig into the numbers. It would be interesting to analyze the names and birthdays of the 46 people who died as well as those who survived, but that would be a huge undertaking. I know there was a formula to calculate pinnacle and challenge numbers for historical dates, but I think it differs from the formula used to calculate these numbers for people. Unfortunately, I only know how to calculate these numbers for people because they are based on birth dates. One of my favorite numerology bloggers is this guy, Hans Dikos. 
or Decoz, D-E-C-O-Z, check out the link below to see his interpretation of 9-11. Pretty fascinating. We're including that link in the show notes. But back to the Silver Bridge collapse. I also wanted to point out another significance of the number 13 that I forgot to mention in my previous email. 13 is also a karmic debt number representing potential obstacles. The number 13 reflects scattered energy, superficiality, blaming others or external forces, laziness, unwillingness to take responsibility. I also looked into the numbers for the Silver Bridge. Adding up the numbers corresponding to the letters in the name, the total comes to a 4. This number isn't surprising because 4 is the builder number. At its highest vibration, it represents strength and stability. At its weakest vibration, well, it represents the exact opposite, which is chilling considering what happened. 46 people lost their lives. That number boils down to a 1. This number represents leadership. And the reason that boils down to a one, and she's not explaining it here, but I know what she did. She's four plus six is 10, and you take the zero away. So it boils down to a one. Yeah. So in numerology, and again, I have nothing about this other than through, <laughs> through her emails and conversations with her, yeah. is you don't take the number 13 in itself. You deal with numbers as single digits. So exactly. 13 is one plus three. That is four. Right. Yeah. So she's saying here that 46 people lost their lives. That number boils down to a one. This number represents leadership, new beginnings strength, determination, and courage. On the negative side or lower vibration, the one is associated with aggression, impatience, closed-mindedness, and egotism. As for my interpretation, I don't think I have enough background or experience to say anything, except that the numbers are interesting. Beyond that, it's my personal belief and speculation. The only thing that jumped out for me is the high incidence of threes and fours. It makes me wonder about the dates and times of the Mothman sightings or calls from Indrid Cold. It would definitely freak me out if a lot of threes and fours showed up in that data. I definitely believe the universe is providing mankind with signs, warnings, lessons about the past, present, and future. Numbers are only part of it in my book. All right, so this is interesting to me. I would also like to point out, this is a crazy thing to me, but I'm sure it's just a coincidence, but we like to talk about everything, and everyone knows that sure. our, our theory episodes, we try to cover every possible angle. Yes. And I just want to point out when it comes to the number 13 anyway, or yeah. one, three, four, and 13 in joint, C13 being the one that failed, that last week when I was working on part three of the show after Sarah edited it and sent it back to me, at which point I usually, this is how our post-production process works, I listened through for places for Ryan to do sound design. And I put markers on the sequence, which was, as everyone knows, over two hours long. And I just went through, I'm listening to it in real time and saying, oh, this would be a great place to do something with sound design. And I put the markers in, they're called cues. Yeah. So sound design Q1, sound design Q2. Along the way, I'm doing other things. I'm trimming very, very little because Sarah's such an amazing editor, but I do a little bit of work where I might like remove something that yeah. she couldn't have known about, like right. some content mistake that we made or something like that. And I'll take this stuff out. So I've got a lot of markers in there and I got down to the very end which, as you know, we revisited the collapse of the bridge. We were talking about the woman who drove onto the bridge in the 3D movie that we posted of yeah. her experience. And I had wanted Ryan to put just a little bit of some kind of sound cue in there to remind us that the bridge was collapsing. And when I looked at it, and this was the last sound design cue for that episode, and it was specifically for the bridge collapsing, it was Q13. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I didn't number it. I didn't ha actually know. I was numbering them as I was writing them, but I wasn't thinking about it. And I was just like, okay, what do I need to look at the last one? Oh, that last one was 12. This one was 13. And I called for that sound effect 
to happen about yeah. 60 seconds before the show ended. Yeah. Anyway, it's Do, probably nothing. You know, this is a confirmation bias. It's just whatever. Right. But, you know, I almost feel stupid even talking about it, you know? <laughs> well, but it struck a little chord in me. Yeah. But I, I can't say that I didn't get that feeling that I get sometimes where the hair stands up on your neck. None of that happened. But I was just like, wow, that is it's, a little strange. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But I, I look at it this way. There was that movie with Jim Carrey called, uh, it was it 23? It has to do with people obsessing over the number 23. Yeah. And there's a good line from the movie, but it goes beyond the movie itself. But if you look for the number 23, you'll find it. Yeah. And it's like 11-11 on your clock. If you start noticing 9-11 on your clock. Or, yeah, if you start noticing it, there's, there's a psychic, Yeah, there's a mental connection that you start to make. Good and, luck uh, sleeping, everyone. <laughs> or now you're just going to be waking staring up at 3.33 yeah. in the morning. Yeah. yeah. For a while, I was always looking at the clock at 1234, so it's one, two, three, four. Oh, yeah. Now you're aware of it, and you notice it more. If you look at the clock, and it's 723, it doesn't mean anything to you. So unless you start seeing it all the time, you just happen to, like, maybe a couple of times in a row, like, oh, my God, 723, what does that mean? Now you start looking at the clock, and it's always 723 yeah. in the morning and in the evening. If you look at, you know, that's what they say about 13th. There's no 13th floor in a lot of American elevators. It's cultural. In Japan, it's four, I believe. Is yeah, the, that, well, in Asian means, countries, yeah. Death. So there's... Uh, Were you the one that told me that? Yeah, I do know that there is a digital tape evolution. You know, went from D1 oh, yes. as a digital tape. These are broadcast quality tape formats. Yeah, D2 was the large cartridge that was a very high quality of, of its time. Then then D3. Uh, yeah, and these and machines that played these tapes back yeah. when we were finishing commercials and movie trailers and all that stuff, even the decks... Yeah. Were well over $100,000. Yeah. It's yeah. like it's like putting a cassette cartridge into a Ferrari. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah but yeah, but... It, uh, so it was D1 was the big one when I first... I remember really when the D1 first, came out. Yeah, the yeah. first digital cartridge format to right. come out. And... Then they came out with D2. Right. And then D3. The machines were so expensive and would be outdated so quick that you wouldn't buy them. You would just lease them and put them in yeah. your machine room. Right. And then D3 came out. And then guess what came after D3. It wasn't D4. It wasn't. <laughs> it was D5. Yeah, and the reason that I'd heard is that the word four sounds close to the word for death. So again, we'll, we'll need a Chinese uh, expert or a Japanese, somebody proficient in Japanese. So basically, it's bad luck. That's a cultural thing. So you skip that. That's kind of like why there's no 13th floor in some elevators. Then again, Taylor Swift loves the number 13, so <laughs> writes it on her hand. So for her, yeah. that's a good luck number. So for some people, it depends on the emphasis and the focus that you put on it and the association of good or bad. If you're born on the 13th and, and you, you love your birthday, a lot of great things happen, you go down and you get the ice cream canoe, 13 is a great number. All right, before we go on, I want to talk a little bit about something. We're not going to go super far in this because it's another rabbit hole and we're trying to cover a lot of ground tonight. Trying but, to fill some holes. Yeah, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the planet Lanulos. Have you been there? No. Is it nice? Well, it sounds nice because yeah. let me tell you what, everyone walks around naked and apparently they all look good. <laughs> <laughs> That already makes it uh, suspicious for me. Well, yeah. Let I me mean, ask you this, though. Is it a physical planet or is it a place? Let's explain to our listeners what we're talking about. What we didn't tell you about good old Woody and Indrid Cold, because we wanted you to just accept that story at its face value for what it was, is that later on in Woody and Indrid's encounters, Woody explained that Indrid took him back to a planet in a galaxy called Ganymede. Woodrow Derenberger. Yes, Woodrow Derenberger. First things first, in terms of human science anyway, there is no galaxy called Ganymede. Ganymede is a moon orbiting Jupiter. And 
Woody was led to believe by Cold that he was being taken to a planet called Ganymede. It's kind of the classic thing, the benevolent space brothers, I think, as Cog said in the <laughs> said in the arc. And he had implied, or one of our arc members had implied that it was derivative of the worlds that H.G. Wells discussed in the time machine. However, wait a second, you're talking about Lanulos and just the nature of it and how it works and that there's no war. And it's it's also, you know, Star Trek, everything that's all oh, like well, it's, the Eloy and the Morlocks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So there's some thoughts to that, but Woody had said that he had been there and that they don't fight and they're all naked and all of this. It sounds pretty crazy what Woody was saying. Yeah, well, Andrew had clothes, pretty, yeah. pretty hip ones too. Well, when he was on Earth, yeah, yeah, that would be real bad. Come out, pop out, <laughs> pop out of a lantern naked. Hey, can I borrow uh, pants and get arrested? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Sorry, it was a little callback. Yeah, but um, yeah. So you can read about this. Woody actually wrote a book about. Going to Lanulos, which I ordered but haven't read yet. Visitors from Lanulos, my contact with Indrid Cold. There's a whole book, yeah. which I, like I said, written by Woody, ghost written or by some written else. by Woody. And I am yeah. looking forward to reading it over Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. And uh -huh. it's my understanding too, one of the things that he talks about in Keel's book, and when he talks to Keel, is that when he was working on the manuscript, people were repeatedly breaking into his house and stealing huge segments of it. And he had to write them over and over again. That ties in. So, uh, but well, here, but actually, look, a callback to uh, Jose Chung. Yes, the because, X Files episode. Yeah, there's a gentleman in there who keeps trying to write a book about his exploits, and uh, well, I'm sure it's connected. Yeah, he gets thwarted. Going back out to something that Forrest says all the time that I really love, taking the ten thousand foot view on this. <laughs> well, that's a business thing that I I still yeah. like it. Okay. I mean, it's a business buzzword. <laughs> right. It's yeah. bleeding edge. Um, oh boy! But I just wanted to say. I think that the whole Lanulo story makes Woody seem pretty crazy. And as being the way that we are in this show, and we like to talk about everything in every possible angle, I'm not saying that in a dismissive way. I'm saying it goes a step too far. And I don't know why, for me, the guy in metallic clothes climbing out of a lantern that has nearly run you off the road is okay, but going to the planet Lanulos crosses some other kind of line. You know why? Because his story about the incident and interaction on the road, it's not cliched. It's not take me to your leader, you know, yeah. that it's weird enough that it sounds oddly plausible. Right. Not, I mean, if you don't buy into that, look, none of this is going to be plausible. Okay. And we know that. But if you're willing to bet... It's hard for me when you start naming the planets and you take an, and well, you start talking about the culture and all that, because you got to be real good at... You know who's real was real good at that, yeah. I should say? But Frank Herbert? Yes. Dune? You knew where I was going. I Absolutely. did not know that. There's just a stab in the No, uh, but sand. like when you read Dune and you read about the cultures that he created and how it all works, yeah. it's believable. Well, look, so all if your you best, said that yes. that's what you experienced as a contactee, you went to this thing and it was like, I buy that. Yeah, but I'll tell you why, though. It's that extra step, but it kind of doesn't make sense. Like, you've got this interesting encounter where he gives details that are not too crazy. Aside He's from everyone being naked. Well, <laughs> I'm not even getting to Ganymede yet. Oh, okay. I'm talking about this other thing where it's the first instance of this, and there's other examples. I'm kind of hard-pressed right now to think of them, but it's a type of story. It's a type of setup where you believe it, you believe it, you believe it, and then, like, nope, flying pigs, no thank you. It's like, like you went too far, but here's my thinking on this. If it is part of whatever he experienced, and I'm not saying it's all accurate, if it actually all really happened, but if you want to believe Woodrow that he did experience something like that, 
and it is all hallucinatory in nature. And that's not to mean that it's not real in some sense. He experienced another version of reality, shall we say, that a place could not be called Ganymede, or maybe he's misinterpreting that, or he misheard it, or it's just set, you know what? Like, right, it comes not, down to that whole thing, like all the stuff that was happened to Keel, the information isn't quite right. Exactly. It's yeah, like, you know what, they're, presenting, you. they're presenting to him, we're actually 12 foot tall lizards with our junk hanging out. Yes. He's going to freak out. So let's just be naked, good looking people. And again, that's another Star Trek where they go to this planet, they're the aliens, and then when they see them in their true form, they're like these tiny little like worms. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, but, and I talked to Scott about this before. There is a couple of stories. Actually, it's an uh, old friend of mine had his the old Greek uncle, and he had this crazy story of being abducted. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm pointing that out is there's an, and I didn't look this up. I was planning on it, and I thought it was not really that connected. But up near the kind of general tri or quad state area from where I'm from in Washington state, there was a story that made the paper. And I'll just relay quickly here without all the facts because I love doing that. Did you just pin down your region? No, just Washington state. It's one of them. That's in the general area. And it's not from the area that I'm at. It was Western Washington. So, but I did go to school in Western Washington. So, but at the time it was in the paper and uh, I saved it somewhere, but it was a crazy story. This woman's, she's probably in her thirties or forties. Her father who's in his 70s, probably close to 80, goes out hunting, and as, you know, old guys are wont to do, and he's taking his pickup. So what they would do is drive down the road. He'd see a a spot where he'd like to go in and kind of hunt legally, and he'd park the truck along the side, you know, along the side of the road, and he'd go wandering in. Well, he didn't come home for three days. So his, of course, his daughter was terrified that he was hurt, you know, or, or something happened to him, and he broke his hip, and he couldn't get to help, cououldn't get to the truck. So they searched for him. They, they looked everywhere, and... On the third day, she finally came to this clearing. I think they found his truck, but he wasn't anywhere near it. They came to this clearing, and there he was, sitting out in the middle of this clearing in, in the woods, surrounded by trees, sitting on a log. And she comes running up, like, Dad! He comes running up to him, and he's just as peaceful and calm as ever. And his clothes are perfectly cleaned and pressed. And she's like, what happened? He's like, well, I was abducted. And I know that sounds crazy, but I just got back, and I got to tell you, it was a nice experience. And, and that was as w- was reported, but his description was, well, they took me aboard their craft, and I was tended to by miniature naked women. Oh. So that, I know that sounds crazy, but for those well, of you that That's the UFO have, I want. <laughs> like, well, Scott, you don't know what they really are. <laughs> they could right. be like 12-foot tall lizards. Yeah. Good point. Because the point is, is like they're tricking you. They're putting you at ease. As our friend Travis says, it's a trick. Yeah, it's a, it's a trap. <laughs> then my other friend, I said it with his uh, Greek uncle or friend of the family, an older guy. He is was that a also euphemism? Greek uncle. Yeah, no, that's Dutch uncle. Oh, okay. Uh, which and it's not a euphemism, but it's a nickname. But the Greek relative or this or is family what happens friend. to your brain after. Uh, it's been so long. Parts on the I, know, I know. <laughs> we did this all in one stretch. We just chopped it up and delivered it at different times. Yes, which is kind of what's happening here. Yeah. He also had a similar story. He was taken aboard a craft. He said, oh, they push, push stuff on my food. They gave him some special food. It kind of made him woozy or something. That's the Greek guy. But then was tended to by miniature naked women. Totally different stories. Totally unconnected. But I've heard that again. Several times. So my point is, and again, and I've heard an analyst familiar with UFO research saying, well, look, if it's a terrifying situation, what's the most calming thing, especially for an older guy? It's like small naked women. Now, again, like I said, they might be just 
giant uh, trilobites you know, that right. are flying the ship. That would be scary, but that's an interesting thing. So in Woody's case, like getting back to that, if he's somewhere where it is, again, the encounter, first of all, freaked him out the first time, and it's something pleasing. And again, it reminds me of the movie Contact. Oh, Contact. Where does Jodie Foster go? She goes to this magical place with a man that looks like her father. And she says, how can this be? You passed away. And he says, well, I'm taking a form that you can understand and that is pleasing. And they're a nice beach. It doesn't look real, but it's something relaxing. And as the, I remember as the alien says, who looks like her father, David Morse, these are baby steps. We start out small because we're going to hit you with a lot of information here and you can't handle it all at once. So that was the first contact. In that it Sometimes was, I got to be pleasing. honest, yeah. and we live in Hollywood. Sure. My wife works in the business, thereabouts. She's not in film. She's a television comedy really? writer, but we have friends that work in the movies. And okay. I do sometimes wonder if information's being disseminated to us to prepare us for a future, <laughs> you know, because that- Oh, no, the, dude, that's another huge idea is yeah. that we're being prepared, we're getting ready, we're getting used to the idea of something coming. And I don't know if it's coordinated- you know, logically, but there's a movie coming out. Uh, it's coming out very soon, Arrival. And that's all about the first contact with aliens and trying to understand them and not freaking out and starting a war. So getting back to Woodrow. Okay, so that's disappointing. You buy into his first part of his story, and then it's a naked planet of hotties, you know, men and women, and everything's groovy. Maybe he did go somewhere, but it is not as he saw it. That is a really interesting observation. And I want to tell you something that actually just came in right now, not more than 15 minutes ago. Ooh, uh, hot off the wire. Yeah, hot off yeah. the river from the Astonishing Research Corps, which we managed through an app called River. One of our newest members, Maria Stasio, uh -huh. sent a fascinating article from New Scientist. This is, was published on November 2nd of this year, November 2nd, 2016, just eight days ago. The headline of this article is, You are hallucinating right now to make sense of the world. The subheadline, Understanding what is happening in the brain during hallucinations reveals how we're having them all the time and how they shape our perception of reality. I told you in the last episode, all of our reality is a sham. Yeah. So, well, it, it, so to speak. You yeah. did say that. And it, this is an interesting article. I took a look at it. There's a lot here that talks about how it comes back to what you said yeah. about your eyes being chunks of brain on a stem and that right. your brain is doing the work. They're just gathering the light and that sort of thing. We come back around to this theme of what do you need to see? Yeah. Maria, thanks for sending that in. We really appreciate it. It's really fascinating because the, the other part of the Lanulo story, which at face value... For me, I got to admit, it's a stretch when yeah. I listen to it. Okay, when I, you well, know, I, know, and that, I don't know why Indrid Cold yeah. is not a stretch and going to Lanulos is. Well, yeah, it's the name of the planet. It sounds kind of silly. It sounds 50 yeah, sci-fi. if you've ever tried to write anything. Lemuria, you, you know, know an underground uh, civilization of creepy peoples. Again, that's more time machine. That's the first the, thing that know. comes up whenever you try to write anything. I'm married to a writer and yes, I have dabbled, but I haven't <laughs> finished anything. I don't want to call myself a writer. Uh, I'm not a writer, but... When you are writing fiction, and especially if you're writing anything spectacular, and even if you're not, just normal drama or whatever, sure. coming up with names, it's the hardest part, <laughs> you know? Right. And you can instantly tell when you've come up with a stupid name for something, yeah, like, or a person, yeah. or a place, and you're trying to be all different, and you're like, oh, Lanulos, where the people are naked, you know? And it yeah. reminds me of... Um, <laughs> 
I can't remember what there was a movie. Well, there was sound, an old movie it does with sound Walter like a, a lotion. I must say, there was an old movie with Walter Matthau. wasn't a huge movie. Yeah, but I remember him. The joke was he would go, "I'm going to Tahiti where the women don't wear no tops." Yeah. You know, and like <laughs> right, that's right. I can't do Walter Matthau. Yeah, and but go I, to Tahiti where the it. women don't wear no tops. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> something like that. That's what Lanulos sounds like. Yeah. However, Sorry, that wasn't very good. I know you get. I've got to practice when you when you get to call. I know. Me I put on you on the spot on Walter Matthau. <laughs> but yeah. the point is that the Lanulos story has a little extra traction, and I want to tell you why. Yeah. There was a young man who was in college in Maryland in February of 1968 who encountered a being very similar to Indrid Cold named Vadik. Yeah, right. We made reference to Vadik in some of our earlier episodes. Vadik came and took this young man, whose name was Tom, on a trip, drove him out 30 minutes from wherever he was working as a waiter, I believe, to an egg-shaped craft that he sat in and watched a TV while it traveled for, I don't know, several hours or something. This oh, is all the, in the Mothman uh, prophecy. And the back of the headrest entertainment. Yeah, center. exactly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. And when he got out of it, he was at this planet where everyone who was walking around was naked. Yeah. And Vadik apparently made a real big point of telling Tom over and over yeah. that this was the planet Lanulos. Don't stare. Eyes yeah, up here. Don't Eyes stare. Here. But here's yeah. my point. <laughs> right. Tom. And Woody Derenberger, who both had been to Lanulos, never met, never talked, and Woody's story had not been made public about Lanulos. That is the part I love about that. Right. So what's happening here is both these guys, if they were hallucinating or whatever they were believing, whatever, somehow believed that they went to this place called Lanulos where everyone was naked and there was no war. Yeah. So for me, that shifts the whole perspective on Woody's story. Again... Right. Because the thing with Woody is everything that happened to him happened to more than just him. Yeah. Other people encountered Indrid Cold. Other people saw him talking on the side of the road to a man next to his car. Other people went to Lanulos. Right. And the thing about Tom was he had been telling his roommates about it, apparently. They all kind of made fun of him, but they were also his friends yeah, in a yeah. loving way. Yeah. And then a few months later, what had happened was Woody had gone on TV because he had gotten famous. Right. He goes on TV. He starts talking about Lanulos on TV. And they're like, Tom, 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 you got to yeah. come in here. You got to come in here. He's talking yeah. about Lanulos. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure Tom from the other room was like, was everybody naked? You know? <laughs> right. And so here we go. Yeah. It's like, what is that? I love what you just said, taking us into this segment right now. Yeah. It makes more sense almost than this being a real thing. Like, we're going to take you to Ganymede. And it's like, <laughs> but that's a moon. No, no, don't worry about that. Yeah, right. It's, it's also it's it a can, galaxy. There could be two. It's a galaxy. It, yeah, it so, doesn't just have to be one moon. There can be a several of them. Yeah. Which begs the question, when both these guys are going to these places, what's really happening to them? Possibly even dark. And what is, is happening to right, them? Right, right. And is it being perpetuated by the same beings, the same people, the same forces. Yeah. Is it like, you know, hey, this guy, Woody, play uh, cartridge number two, yeah. which is the Lanulos interaction. Right. It's like some guy in a DJ booth. He's got like, I keep coming back to DJs. Yeah. Right. And he's got a cigarette and it's stuck to his lip. It's yeah. not even, it's just yeah. hanging down, smoke's coming out and he's just grabbing cartridges. Yeah. Like this old timey, yeah, right. what they used to use carts, they called right. them carts. Yeah, right. And he's plugging in the Lanulos cart or the tiny naked women cart yeah. or the whatever. And they're sending people all over the place. God only knows what's actually happening to them while this is going on. Yes. And unfortunately, you know, you like give that guy number 27 the anal probe one. Like, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. I, do not want that cart. One? I do not want that cart. <laughs> no, they're not connected. But again, 
if you kind of separate out the, the fact that neither of these guys actually went to a place called Lanulos, but they came up with a story independently, and maybe they even believed it. They believed they went there. So what is that psychic connection between these two disparate people that have never met? Yeah. If you can prove that, that have never come into contact, they didn't share the story. I think their two pods in the Matrix are right next to each other. That could be. They're running the same. <laughs> Again, one's borrowing the other program. Yeah. Really, to back this all out, it calls into question the nature of our reality on the very base level here. It's like, are these even other beings? Are these experiences real? Is this a glitch in the matrix? Great subreddit, by the way. Yeah. Glitch oh, yeah, matrix. right, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, but is it duplicatable or is it, or is this actually done by an outside force that is enacting some kind of experiment or observation on us and some of us get the same treatment? Or, like I said, is as it- As long as we're not uh, getting the treatment the cows are getting. <laughs> the, that's- I'm okay. okay. I don't want to be cored yeah. out. Yeah. The rules, people, the rules. Yeah. And our own Mr. Cogswell and his excellent observation. I don't know how much we'll talk about that in a few minutes here, but we can only go by what people have reported. And if you are an experiencer yourself, and I only met a couple, and I got to tell you, they're not the town wino sleeping under the bridge. These are very That's solo. the guy you do the podcast That's the, with. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I wish if that were the case. I wish you'd seen something. We could, we, we could have some good stories. But these are people in uh, very serious jobs with families, totally upright citizens. And yet they've had this very unexplainable experience that I'm telling you, you don't have to believe me, but it happened to me. Yeah. And what do you do with that? All right. Let's yeah. come back down to earth. For okay. A let's talk about more earthly, simple explanations for yes. the people that already unsubscribed to us three episodes ago. <laughs> or maybe <laughs> probably in the last half hour, they just turned it off and, you know, they listened to the last podcast on the left or something. Uh, yeah. We can't continue without talking about mass hysteria. And well, that, that, that. again, that, that even came up with our own river folks yeah. and the ARC with a suggestion that uh, if you're looking for a symptomatic psychological effect or even sociological effect that seems to have some kind of correlation there. Yeah. There's a lot of different stories about mass hysteria and how right. it's come about. And it's something that you've mentioned over the years. Yeah. Over the, uh, well, I can't say years. Yeah, you've been doing well, this two years. MK Ultra. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> yeah, MK Ultra. Yeah. We say MK, if you're, yeah, if you're drinking, taking a drink every time we say MK uh, Ultra. You've only you had drink. about four shots. Yeah. <laughs> you should take a drink when I say again. Yeah. Again. <laughs> and again. And again. So, yeah. or folks. Uh, yeah. We actually, uh, I like saying Marty. folks. I'm yeah, okay with Marty, folks. Marty's, uh, he's had many a drunken evening just shooting fireball uh, whiskey <laughs> by how many times we say folks. Yeah. You know, there are certain tropes, I guess, or bellwethers or whatever you want to call them, bullet points in this genre that keep coming up to explain these weird things when it's a group of people. Yeah. Obviously, when somebody's experiencing hysteria, it's like, I saw these orbs come down and they captured me and I saw naked people and it was, it was kind of nice. When it's one person, that's, of course, not mass hysteria, but he might be, you know, it might be a form of delusion, individual psychosis. But when it's a bunch of people, you need some other explanation. It's like when there's over a hundred recorded instances of sightings of the Mothman or a group of people see a UFO come down and suck water out of a water tower, whatever it is, a giant 25-foot wingspan bird and seen by a whole airplane of people, you need some other explanation. Like we're not all similarly crazy. Yeah. 
So people go to mass hysteria because the term sounds good. It's Well, also, they think it's you know, spreading, you know, and I think it's interesting. And Marie talked about in the arc, she also talked about social contagion, the idea yes. of that. Right. Um, you mean just an idea of a threat spreading through yeah, a lot of Yeah, and it, it's related loosely to mob mentality, right. which uh, we've had some startling demonstrations of in recent days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, well, but just how when yeah. a group gets together... I'm not getting into politics, yeah, but it did happen yeah. all through the election here in the United States. No, last night, groups, just last night, yes. Yeah, groups have, but even before that part, even before the agitated part, right. groups are aligning on opposite ends of the spectrum, yeah. and they're going at it, right. and self-reinforcing their own values and internalizing, and and it's kind of the nature of humanity in a sad way, but... Yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. Um, it, and well, that's this, related yeah. to social contagion and mass hysteria. Well, this and, is and other people, connects. right? Yeah, there is a connection there, and I think there's yeah. a strong sociological connection, but if we want to call it collective hysteria, group hysteria, collective obsessional behavior, I didn't spend too much time going through the medical journals and the definitions and looking at case studies, because really, <laughs> I hate to say it, but the Wikipedia page really gives a summary of that, and some famous cases, but... My favorite one was, wasn't there a... Cat nuns? Yeah, the cat nuns. <laughs> the cat That's nuns. pretty amazing. Well, it's, it's, They it, were all meowing. Yes, a convent of nuns. They're all meowing like cats, and more and more nuns are starting to meow at cats at certain times for several hours all together. I'm feeling really compelled until to meow they, right now, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Okay. I'm just going to say folks. Thank you. All yeah. right, very good. Take a drink. <laughs> Okay, so that's the Middle Ages. These things aren't very well recorded or documented. And of course, the observational skills are limited as people don't know what this is. Demons, we don't know. It's a convent of nuns. Do you think? Yeah. Yeah, wow. Well, that's an well, interesting that, Well, Because okay. it's really innocent and whatever. But my question is, do you think that they were really realistic meows or they were just saying the word meow? <laughs> no, I don't think they... Meow. Well, or were they going... Meow? Look, they're French. So, they, you know what? Other other cultures right, and right. languages, they have different... More of a Pepe Le Pew kind of Well, meow. they they actually have very different sounds for their animals that they make. Yeah, that's yeah, good So point. they don't say roof, roof. I saw a thing on one. Well, here's the you thing know. where I don't see it fits because, again, that ties into the Dancing Plague of 1518. I know, we, we always talk about that. Yeah. Every episode we mention Würzburg, 1749... Montreal, this is in 1894, 60 students uh, at a lady seminary. There are some symptoms, but it's not like really Point Pleasant. It really, to my mind, does not fit. No. It's not everybody saying like, oh my God, I'm dizzy, I'm nauseous with this gas smell, or this mothman has got such horrible BO, and I'm, doing, I'm being flip here, but you know what I'm saying? We're all describing this thing that's causing very similar symptoms, and they all have similar ailments. Right. So, yes, we had a few people with actinic conjunctivitis. Yeah, or Cleves conjunctivitis. Right, like you would get if you were staring into an arc welder's spark. Or Which I always a, do. Don't do that. I know. <laughs> Even with your Oakley glasses, whatever you got. <laughs> people are suffering some physical symptoms and certainly terror across the board. So you have like Mary Millette, and she's bleeding from the ear. Some people have conjunctivitis that never seems to go away. But it's not like they're all suffering like seizures or, you know, again, it sounds silly, but dancing, you know what I'm saying? Some, a collective activity that... Right. There's a difference people... between what you're saying right now is yeah. that you do not personally feel that the Mothman case is a case of mass hysteria based well, on what you know about other cases that have been attributed to mass hysteria, which, by the way, yeah. I want to say, and just in terms of defining mass hysteria, right. trying to put a frame around these incidents, whether it's the nuns in the convent or the dancing plague... right. To me, mass hysteria is a hypothesis. 
there's no it's, proof of that that is what's happening. Exactly. That somebody well, just yeah. is doing this thing and a hundred other people are doing it because the other, they're just trying to frame something that they don't understand to That's this a day. large part of, exactly, there's a large so, part of, now keep in mind, folks, what if it's we are not- a real outside influence? <laughs> we're not psychiatrists, we're not no, sociologists, we're, we're not, not psychologists. We're not, as, we're as, totally as John Keel says, uh, I think he's an expert on nothing yeah. at all or something <laughs> like right. that. No, we could just make observations and, and hopefully you'll enjoy them. Yes. What we're saying here is that you, when you get to these symptoms, what happens is that there's no gas odor that's detectable by outside people. There's no reason that the Tanganyika laughter epidemic has any physical cause. They didn't all eat, you know, crazy oatmeal, and then now they're all laughing for days and days and weeks, and it comes back even when they stop. It doesn't really fit to me the symptoms and the causes and, well, there, who knows what the cause is, but I think you're right, is that you're trying to put a, some kind of sensible label on this group happening. Now, out of this list, of course, it's Wikipedia. Look, it's not complete. It may not even be totally accurate. And, you know, like they list the clown sightings that we've been kind of yeah. talking about. And they're saying like, that's part of mass hysteria. But like, no, they've actually caught some people. Right. So to your earlier point, uh, just quickly before I talk about the monkey man of Delhi, I do think that it is possible that somebody heard a description on the news, male or female, doesn't matter, and they started freaking out about it, and suddenly they think they see something in the woods. That happens all the time. And so a lot of those cases could definitely be misattributed or just part of uh, wound up nerves. The whole town was under tension. People were freaking out and uh, because these stories are kind of coming forth. So yeah, it's not that the fact that they want to jump on the bandwagon is that They've wound themselves up so tight that now they see something out in the woods and maybe it's a deer and they could see the eye shine. It's like, right. oh my God, it's Mothman. Right. If you've got a hundred people telling a story, and that's the thing that it always is, and, and it's like you say, you only need one of these to be true. But <laughs> if a hundred people are telling a story and say you even take the statistics associated with the infrasound experiments, then you still got 20 people who encountered something unexplainable. Exactly. And the fact that some people have symptoms, but it's not all completely the same, and that they seem to be more directly physical, you know what I'm saying? Like bleeding and uh, eyes that are swollen is different than like, I'm getting seizures, or I can't stop dancing, or, or I can't meowing. stop laughing, or yeah. meowing. All right, talk to me about the monkey man. Oh, here we go. I'm going to read a little history. And again, this is from Wikipedia, but it's kind of fun here. So... In May 2001, reports began to circulate in the Indian capital, New Delhi, of a strange monkey-like creature that was appearing at night and attacking people. Eyewitness accounts were often inconsistent, but tended to describe the creature as about four feet tall, covered in thick black hair, with a metal helmet, metal claws, glowing red eyes, and three buttons on its chest. Others, however, described the monkey man as having a more vulpine snout. And being up to eight feet tall and muscular, it would leap from building to building like a parkour enthusiast. Still others have described it as a bandaged figure or as a helmeted thug. Theories on the nature of the monkey man range from an avatar of the Hindu god Hanuman to an Indian version of Bigfoot. Many people reported being scratched, and two, by some reports three, people even died when they leapt from the tops of buildings or fell down stairwells in a panic caused by what they thought was the attacker. At one point, exasperated police even issued artists' impressions drawings in an attempt to catch the creature. The entire incident has been described as an example of mass hysteria. Have you seen this monkey? <laughs> Not wearing he's a wearing helmet. He's wearing a shiny helmet and he has three buttons. And he's got claws. He's got metal claws. It's a little spring-heeled jack. Yeah. 
And some people would say Spring Hill Jack, that's also on the list as kind of an epidemic of, of seeing something strange. And I think there were some scratch marks around the necks of some ladies and ripped bodices. Right, there's physical... But this is closer to a creature, you know what I'm saying? Rather than like, it's gas or nobody knows what they smelled, suddenly people just start going... It's like the, the, the cat nuns. There's no odor or anything strange and it's not... Uh, Ergot poisoning, they yeah. don't know, but it doesn't fit the same kind of things. This is probably one of the closer examples here. But again, people aren't being attacked so much. It's slightly different, and I think the whole nature of it just does not fit to me. Okay, so there's only a couple of more things we wanted to talk about before we wrapped up. Here's something that a lot of people don't talk about when it comes to the story of the Mothman, and that is how the story was documented and crafted. And... What I love about the way we do our show, a lot of times we know a little bit. We know a little bit of the background or we've heard the story. We do have yeah. a story folder that's got, at this point, well over a thousand ideas in it's it. It's bottomless. Yeah. And it's great to have that. But it's so funny. A lot of times we don't even go to it. We're just like, hey, let's do the blah, blah, blah. Or it's, someone emails and I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. You a know? lot of it is serendipitous. Things yeah. come up. People will mention something. And not that we favor one or the other or your idea that you've sent us goes unnoticed. It may not fit in the lineup for that moment. Yeah. You know? And we, you know. But we, we do keep track of it. Like, it, like, well, earlier, like I said, like the big bird of Texas there. Yeah. We hold on to those. And then uh, when it's something similar, hopefully we can mention it. But please don't feel bad if we can't get to it or it'll be more fitting somewhere else down the line but that's right it's funny you mentioned that how things come up and it's just like polybius was like we just heard that in the news or some connection and you yeah. said like that's it that's it we, yeah that's gonna be the next one exactly yeah. it's an instinct thing and the mothman however has been a long time coming because we've been joking about <laughs> yeah. it more or less since we started and we wanted to do it for halloween this year and at this time of year, we also like to get on the creepier side. Don't worry, folks who love our more historical, non-creepy stuff. We're going to be getting back to that in uh, <laughs> we'll, 2017. We'll be soon boring you, yes. Yes. Okay. But uh, we like to do the spooky stories, too. And the way that we do our research for this show, it's a blessing and a curse. That expression is a cliche, but I do think about it because, you know, my wife used to work at Saturday Night Live, and I used to be so amazed at how it was essentially Monday – or Sunday, yeah. and they had to figure out what they were going to do the next Saturday. They got one day off. They would take Sunday off. Sunday. And... That's like a half day, right? Because they were up all really late. Yeah, generally, if you go to the after party and yeah. the after-after party, <laughs> you're out till five or six in the oh, morning on Saturday goodness. night. And then Sunday, you sleep all day long and recover. And then Monday, they have to go back in and start pitching to the... And they meet the host usually on Monday night. Uh -huh. So it just goes and goes and goes. But anyway, I learned something from that because I didn't work on the show. I was an observer yeah. you know, for a long time. But what I learned was that you can put something together pretty quickly. The problem is our show involves intense research. And this yeah. is why the ARC is so great. I really want to give a shout out to the Astonishing Research Corps. And I'm hesitant to mention names because I'm so afraid I'll leave somebody out. But everybody in there has just been amazing, especially in these past couple of weeks with this Mothman series. And they're chomping at the bit for yeah. the next thing. And here's exactly what I'm talking about. We're not sure what we're doing next. <laughs> well, don't say that. No, but yeah. we, I mean, we have a lot of ideas, but they're ready to start digging yeah. in on something. And No, that's true. And next year, we'll probably start getting out in front of things because we have so many people in the research core now that we'll, we should be able to get ahead of things a little bit. But the point is that... We try to get the show together pretty quickly, and so our research winds up being immersion research. It's yeah. kind of like when you're trying to learn a new language, and the best thing to do is just go try to survive in that country for a month. But the difference for us is we only have three or four days. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> in, a, in a weird uh, parallel dimension. Right. To that end, the reason I'm pontificating about all this is because you get, again, that 10,000-foot view. What happens is you're inhaling all this information. You've read all these books. You've read all these web pages, and now we have all these researchers helping us, and you're taking it all in. And after you spew out all the things you have to share with the people, you get yeah. all that stuff out, and then you step back for a minute, and you see the bigger picture. Yeah. And you also see, if you're doing this show like we are, or if you're one of those people that just found us and binge listened, God help you, to 52 episodes <laughs> uh, in a row, yeah. there's an evolution not only of the show, but there's an evolution of perspective. And one of the things that I noticed about this particular episode in The Mothman and the way that it worked was that I had a perspective, partially because I am married to a writer, of seeing how this works for the writers. And there are writers involved in this series, and that's John Keel. God rest his soul. Yes. He passed away. Yeah, right. But Keel is not the only writer. There was another writer named Gray Barker, who were both very prominent. In fact, Gray Barker's book was published in 1956 called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. One of his later books, which predated The Mothman Prophecies by John Keel, was called The Silver Bridge. Right. And that predated The Mothman Prophecies by five years. It came out in 1970 which was three years after the bridge collapsed. Now, Gray was from West Virginia. He was right there. He was all yeah. up in that. Yeah. He wasn't having to visit it to tell the story. These were his people. Right. All right. So when I was looking at the whole picture of how these writers were all intertwined and working together and also capitalizing on this really amazing story, and these are people who write about really amazing things, yeah. what I saw was something that I've seen before, which is how a group of people in the same creative discipline interact. I know that vibe. I know what that yes. feels like. Okay. And it's interesting. There's competitiveness. In some cases, people are friends. Some cases, people are enemies. These two guys were going after the same prize. And in fact, Barker kind of beat Keel to the punch with his book. But Keel's book turned out to be the big, big hit. Well, there's reasons behind that, I believe, in, in the nature of the books themselves. There and, are. And you're going to get to this, I, I got a feeling. Yeah. Right. And this is the other thing that's interesting, too. Yeah, that we do need to talk about that, the creative angle of those two yeah. authors' works. These two guys collaborated. For they a worked bit, together for out, a little yeah, while. Yeah. yeah. So, and that's what's interesting about it, because when Keel was having to travel to the area to learn about it, and he got connected with Mary Heyer, who was the journalist. Right. And they started working together. And so he was connected to a local, and he is a really great investigative journalist. Yes. And he also specialized in this type of stuff. Gray was a local and also was very much interested in UFOs, but he went on record over the years as saying that those were his kooky books. His kooky books, yeah. And that he didn't believe any of it, and for him it was all kind of a game. Now, the difference in... It, it was a money... It was a way to make money. It was a way to make yeah. money. And the difference between their two angles is like night and day. Yes. I believe that Keel took it very seriously. Yes. And wanted to be taken seriously. And I think that Barker thought it was all a joke. But if you read Barker's any of Barker's books, and I have to confess, I haven't yeah. read one from start to finish, but I have yeah. read considerable excerpts from Right, them. right. His writing style is radically different from John Keel's. Yeah. It is more of a flowery story that... Lots of exposition. Lots of exposition yeah. that's seemingly completely unrelated. I'm not going to sit here and compare... I mean, I guess I am. 
I'm about to say <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to do the thing I'm about to do, but <laughs> I was going to say I'm not going to compare it. Gray Barker to yeah. Cormac McCarthy because I'm not seeing them on the same plane in any stretch. But what I am saying is that I see similarities because when I read Cormac McCarthy, The Road or something like that, I'm reading prose that doesn't have to follow any rules. Uh-huh. It's The sentences are incomplete, whatever. All the rules they teach you when you take a class about writing, Cormac McCarthy doesn't follow any of them yeah. because they're operating on a different plane creatively. It's just all over the place, but the end result is is amazing and entertaining. And Barker's work is amazing and entertaining, yeah. but what's happening is he's throwing away all the stuff that we deem so significant about Kiel's book. He will tell you the UFO part or the men in black part of the story is an aside to the fact of what somebody was wearing or how it was a really hot, weird day or the eggs had gone bad. Would you say it's the difference between spinning an old yarn and giving you kind of a detailed journalistic approach yes. report? Yeah, yeah, I would say it's very different. And yeah. Barker took pride in his work. Sure. But he enjoyed the color that went in yes. around the yeah. stories and probably exaggerating that color. And I think there's probably no question that Keel maybe made some exaggerations here and there too. But I think that Keel believed in the message that he was sending. I don't think he was necessarily just trying to sell books. However, as a writer... You're trying to sell books. You got to make a living. Sure. You got to do whatever you can. No, that is not different for either of them. But let me ask you this, because I know in the case of John Keel that he experienced something strange that shook him to the core, but I don't believe Gray Barker ever did. Barker did not. From what I can tell, and I'm not casting aspersions on his character, uh, these guys have all since passed away, Barker appropriated something that a publisher that he worked with and wound up being friends with. Right, and collaborating something with. Something collaborating with happened. Yeah. And here's the interesting thing, because Keel and Barker, if you're a reader of Stephen King, I'm, I'm a fan of Stephen King as a person and a writer. I don't love all his books just because I don't buy into those kinds of books a lot, although right. I did enjoy The Tommyknockers uh-huh. and I enjoyed some of them and Eyes of the Dragon. But one of my favorite books that anyone has ever written was the one that Stephen King wrote called On Writing. If you ever want to write, it is just truly an amazing book. It's right up there with Bird by Bird. It really tells you about the process. And he talks a lot about the struggle when you're starting out and just sending things out and trying to get them published. And just, it's really amazing. And one of the things that that does is it paints this picture where you start to understand how Gray, Barker, and John Keel were competitors. Because when you pull out and look at what they were both doing at the same time, what you see is that Gray is submitting stories to Fate magazine. Right. At the same time, John Keel is submitting those stories to True to magazine. True magazine, yeah. And I'm sure that Keel is sending stuff to Fate and Barker's sending stuff to True. They are essentially literally going after the same nut. So yeah. there's a lot going on there. When Keel comes to town, there has to be a part of him that's thinking, this guy's an interloper. He's, well, he's muscle, muscling he, in on my uh, territory. Yeah, he's coming in yeah. on my territory here. I have this story that made world headlines when it happened. And now we, you know, Mr. Big Shot's coming in from New York. So right. I haven't read that any of this took place. Yeah. I'm just channeling yeah, what, what I think a possible scenario. Right. No, there's a little bit of correspondence, at least from Keel to Barker. Yes. There is a note, right? I don't know if you're gonna, you were going to get to this in a little no, bit No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Saying that uh, you got to watch out, Gray, because you don't know what you're dealing with here. Exactly. These people play for keeps, I believe is actually part of the quote. And that was my point earlier 
if you didn't experience any of this, you can go on writing your kooky books and thinking like, well, you know what, this is all good fun and people might believe it. He was also a prankster and a hoaxer. Yeah, and that's the next thing I wanted uh, Bar- to get Barker to. was, not Keel. Yes, yes. But I believe John's note to him was like, hey, dude, in so many words, I know you're having fun with this, but you don't realize there's a serious aspect to this because John Keel experienced that serious aspect of it. Well, why don't we talk about that for a second? You had told me that you were listening to Jim's show. Do you remember which show it was? Oh, Jim Harold. Jim Harold is the Jim's the man. He's, he's kind yeah. of the reigning king of the paranormal podcast. He's been doing it a very long time, and he was one yeah. of the guys that inspired us to get into it. Yeah, since this two thousand five. Yeah, uh, Jim has interviewed everybody, pretty much all the big names in yeah. in the genre. And one of them is Brad Steiger. And Brad Steiger was a friend and contemporary of John Keel. And there's a little story that he tells. What episode is this from? This is from the uh, from Jim Harold's Paranormal Podcast. It's from October 26th, 2010. So it's been archived. So the way Jim operates his revenue stream is that you will have to sign up for his Plus Club, which if you love this yeah, stuff... Yeah, to get to I, the older shows. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, five bucks a month. It's definitely worth it a or more. Yeah, I think it's about $9 or $10 a month. My favorite show of his is the Campfire show with the... Re- yes, real people calling real in, people with, calling their in with their ghost stories. stories. And yeah. some of the best ghost stories I've ever heard have been on oh, that show. Oh, yeah, chilling stuff. But it kind of gives you a, paints a bigger picture of what's going on out there. Right. But this one is Brad Steiger was promoting his book, Real Monsters, Gruesome Critters, and beasts from the dark side. And so Jim was interviewing him on his show. And I found this interesting because I, I remember this vaguely. Like, I remember Brad talking about John Keel at a very disturbing encounter that John had in his own apartment in New York. And so Brad had gone out to meet with John because I think he was working on a book about Valentino, the old silent film star. And he was, oh, very uh, cool. it, I just mentioned this when I was talking to Scott here that. Brad went out there to talk to Ivan T. Sanderson and John Keel, and it's Brad Steiger who's so prolific and such a big name in this field himself. I don't know, he's got like 80 books or something crazy. Yeah. Different publications and books. And imagine that uh, dinner going on and talking with those guys and the stories they must have. Yeah. Well, Brad and John and... Uh, oh, and, yeah. yeah. Ivan T. Sanderson. And who's Ivan basically, T. Sanderson. He's basically like the... He's like the father of cryptozoology, right? Well, they would call him probably, a, I think it's accurate, a cross between Indiana Jones and Jack Hanna. Yeah. He, for animals. Yeah, so he'd see right, some now weird I'm stuff I'm going to have to send a little message out for the youngsters. Yeah. Jack Hanna was the wildlife <laughs> guy. I mean, he was he's a lot of things. Around. He's still yeah, around. Yeah, no, he's still yeah. around. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, Jack, don't mean to be Right. Oh, I think maybe, uh, maybe, maybe. maybe uh, Marvin, uh, oh, who's the guy? Mutual of Omaha. Now you're Marlon back. Perkins. They're, oh, Marlon, geez, see, there yeah. you go. Now um, no one's going to know that. Jack Hanna was the guy who used to come on the Johnny Carson show and he would bring all kinds of animals that would attack Johnny. Yeah. Or, or pee on <laughs> yeah, him. Yeah, you can, you're right. Exactly. One of the two is, they're both funny. But, but you, anytime you, can you see him on Saturday, he has his wildlife rescue shows and, and he's got that same old leather hat he wears but uh he's still around if you've ever seen an animal wrangler on any late night talk show they don't exist without jack Hanna. exactly yeah. so and so yeah any researchers that have come after these giants in the field brad right. steiger john keel ivan t sanderson they owe a great amount of debt to them but anyway now brad tells this story about he went out to dinner with John, and he never had Chinese food, I guess. So the, so John Keel took him to Chinese food in New York, which I imagine was awesome. And as the evening goes on, he's telling him these stories. He had one about being visited by three men in black. And a little background here is that Brad at the time was, you know, was a man in his, in his 30s, very fit, was into weightlifting. He's a big dude. And he was like, 
you let these guys, you know, let them show up and try and scare me. Yeah. Then nobody's going to scare me. I can handle myself. And he was shaking in his boots after this. After, after this after, evening of stories. Not just this stories, story, but a bunch of them. A bunch of yeah. other ones. He was convinced. And one little preface here is that John Kill told Brad this story. And he wasn't sure, Brad wasn't sure if John wanted this out because it's a little odd, but he said, well, he's passed away, so I'm going to tell it and hopefully he's okay with it, you know, wherever he is now. So what had happened is that John Kill told Brad the story that one evening, three men just appeared in his apartment. I don't think he, he didn't describe them as seeing them materialize. They were just in his apartment. The door was locked. Somehow they're in there. And they, it's same old story, three men, as even Gray Barker's book uh, describes, the number three showing up and saying, you got to quit what you're doing. Stop going down this path of investigation. At the time, weren't they specifically referring to the Mothman? Yes, this is around yeah. that This is around yes. that same time. Yeah. So that's what they're referring to. Because Keel was going back and forth from where he lived in Manhattan to Point Pleasant, just so you know. Right. He was traveling a lot. He'd stay at the hotel, that hotel there, and then, uh, you know... The Blue be, Fountain. That's right. He'd be doing his a, interviews. I think was a little homage to the Fountain <laughs> Bleu, <laughs> yeah, which is a for the blue five-star hotel. But the Blue Fountain was not. Blue Fountain. In Ohio. Gallipolis. You know. Yeah, Gallipolis. Yeah. I do know one thing. In uh, Ohio, it's called Bell Fountain, not Bell Fountain. Oh, so, right. Yeah. So there you go. I've been yeah. there. These three men wanted to impress upon John that they were not kidding around and they were not normal, not human. So they asked him, well, what do you have under your sink? And he says, well, why don't you go take a look? Being a little incredulous. So one of the guys goes, goes under the sink, grabs a bottle of Clorox, brings it back, and each of them, each of these three men, take giant swallows of this bleach to show them that it had no effect on them. But basically it was like, dude, back off. I'm paraphrasing there. But yeah. <laughs> in their weird, stilted manner, they told him to stop investigating this thing. You don't know what you're getting into. I love that story. And yeah, I, I don't, so just let it sink in for a minute. Yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. These three guys showed up in the apartment, in John Keel's apartment, and they drank bleach in front of him. <laughs> yeah. And he never published the story or told, he told his friends at dinner that this happened. Well, Brad doesn't think that this has been in print anywhere. So, yeah. and that's why he was like, well, I don't know if he really wants me to tell the story. He told to me kind of in confidence because it is strange. If you tell people this kind of thing, yeah, they're going to think you're nuts. Right. But Brad's position is, well, he's passed on, and, and certainly he has books where he's told about encounters similar right. to this. All right, so let me bring it back around Yeah, here. go ahead. So what I want to say is, this is what we're talking about. These are the kinds of things that are happening to John Keel when he is calling Gray Barker and saying, look, I know you think this is all fun and games, and you're playing jokes, and you're being silly about this, but there is some very real danger, which Barker probably didn't believe in. We see this when people, you know, they write to us and like, oh, you know, that story you covered in an interview with that person, that's baloney. That can't happen. Yeah. Or, you know what, they saw a shadow of their family dog going through the hallway. That's what they saw. It wasn't a man in black or they had sleep paralysis or whatever it is. And all I always say is, you haven't experienced it yet. And yeah. wait till you do. When it happens to you, everything changes. Yeah. All right. So my overall point, though, is that there's something about Gray. Gray had taken it upon himself to kind of mess with Keel during his Mothman investigation. Well, as, as we mentioned, he loved pranks and he loved hoaxes. Yes, he was a big fan of all that stuff. There's reason to believe that Gray was actually making some of the weird phone calls that Keel was receiving. And he probably did. Yeah, probably yeah. did. However, Forrest and I, personally, and we've talked about this We've talked about this off the air, so I feel like it's okay for me to speak for Forrest. Yeah, right yeah, now. go ahead. Plus, he's right here. <laughs> sure. Um, we don't think that Gray could have predicted that the Pope might have been assassinated by a man in black robes with a black knife at an airport. 
So even if you say, hey, oh, I'll heal, all those calls must have been fake. You know, it was all hoaxing on the part of Gray Barker. That does not explain the information that Keel got ahead of time regarding all the events that took place, including the collapse of the Silver Bridge, which even Gray couldn't have known. So there's a whole lot at play here. And when you look at the bigger picture, it's so much more complex than you could possibly convey in even a book or a movie. And we're taking you outside of just Keel's book. We're talking about multiple authors here coming at these things from different angles with different goals, and then trying to get down at the root of what really happened. Yeah, you pointed out two very distinct and significant angles in that you have John Keel very serious about this, thinking that there is something going on, being personally affected by all this. And then you have Gray Barker, who's he's documenting it, and in a way, that's important, and he's writing it up in a book, but his attitude about it is like, oh, this is just a bunch of hokum. Yeah. You know? And it pays okay, pays the bills, and, and I'll do it, but it's tongue-in-cheek. He's giving you a wink. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's the thing. We talk about hoaxers and stuff and, and people doing it for a laugh, but like at some point it's kind of cruel. Yeah. Especially when it's directed at somebody personally and you're trying to mislead them or make them look like a fool. That's the thing about practical jokes. It's fun if the person themselves... I still if, have if, regret about some practical jokes. <laughs> Wait. Oh, you've done a hoax, haven't you? Yeah. No, I just... You know, a long time ago when I worked in post-production in Los Angeles, right. this was some time ago, we... A friend of ours that was the head of... IT and all this stuff at this big company, we called and told, we pretended to be Adobe <laughs> and we're calling to tell him yeah. we knew about all the pirated software he had. Oh the, God, that would, that would the put company. the company. Yeah, but the fear got it anyway. It wasn't my idea. Yeah. It was another person that I worked with idea, but I did participate in it. We called back five minutes later to tell him it was all a joke and he was in the office with his boss confessing. Oh God, <laughs> yes. Well, he did not lose his job. No, and, uh, no. But it was a That's, sobering experience for them about bootleg software. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a different thing. In this realm, you know, my attitude about people who do that, it's like, I think there's really something that's worth investigating. Look, I can't personally tell you if, if all this stuff is real or, or part of it, and I certainly haven't yet experienced it myself, and maybe that's a good thing, but... I'm for the position of getting down to the truth of what is really happening here. And with that, you need verifiable facts and interviews, and you need real good data. And when you have somebody doing a hoax on it, you're muddying the water. You're putting lies out there. And what I think we all really deserve is the truth. That's it for our epic series on the Mothman. And to paraphrase what Indrid Cold's cohort Vadig told Tom after every encounter with him, We'll see you in time. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back on November 30th with a new show. If you're in the States, enjoy your Thanksgiving. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Good night.